2: Welcome back to the speakeasy. I'm your host, Damon Bolte. We took a little break last week to go down to uh, the Florida Keys for the founder of Heritage Foods USA and the Heritage Radio Network, Patrick Martin, and, Ax- and Saxelby's wedding. Uh, really good time. Uh, and now we're back. A very lovely day in Brooklyn, New York here, and I don't even know how to get started with this show today because I have one of the most interesting people that I've met to date, Mr. Jonathan Forrester, finally in the studio after a long time of anticipation and waiting for him to come in the studio. We got him in here, along with his really amazing uh and very very old school line of spirits and bitters uh the duchess spirits uh we're going to be talking about some some sugar wash moonshine some aged peach brandy and colonial bitters welcome to the show jonathan thank you i have spent the last hour with you before the show chit-chatting hanging out and uh I'm kind of blown away. I, I, I we're going to have we're going to have a lot to talk about on this show today. Um so first of all, uh a new line of spirits is, it, it, they've just been launched. Yes, just in the past uh, couple of weeks. A couple of weeks. Um and they're very very like old school traditional style spirits. Um and you are I want to point out a very very old school dude. Um Let's just jump in, man. Um, you were telling me before the show that uh, that you got into the, the world of spirits and wine
3: and, and, and food at a very young age. Yeah, that's true. My father was taking uh, courses um, at NYU and Columbia for undergrad and grad school. And just for fun, he took wine courses. So he would come home, and I would be five, six years old. And uh, he would teach me about wines. Ask my opinions, uh, quiz me. He would take the bottles and turn them label away. And um, I had to tell him what country and what type of wine they were, which nowadays it's hard to do. But back then um, in Europe, they had specific bottles and colors of the glass for different types of wines. By the time I was 10, 11 years old, um, I basically had to, whether it was French, German, Italian, Spanish, read the label of the bottle, and tell him what region it was from, what type of wine it was, approximately what the flavor characteristics should be. Uh, it was a lot of fun um, having my father and spending time with him like that, because my parents were both immigrants, and going through school here, they always worked opposite shifts. We never saw them growing up at the same time, because uh, they w- they didn't want babysitters. They wanted to spend time with us. was great. Yeah. That's yeah. the way it should be.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um so you uh, you started out uh, tasting wines and and just from the palate and and the nose picking these things out mm-hmm. uh, varietals and, and different regions and that eventually over a period of time yeah which <laughs> I get, we're gonna have a i hate to do this to our listeners, but we're gonna to have to have like a whole series on you we can't we can't fit it all in one show um that's definitely a good thing um you've definitely been a renaissance man as far as just living life and traveling around and especially with uh with food and beverage and you told me before the show that you had you basically lived in you
3: said eight states. Yep. And uh, five different regions of the five country. Five different regions of the country. And traveled. I've been to 46 of the states. Wow. I've been to two Oklahoma and New York. <laughs> mm. And Florida. Florida, hey. <laughs>
2: three. I got three under my belt. Um, so after being introduced at a very young age to the the world of food and beverage you said you were you were cooking and you were you were checking out these different wines uh what what started leading you into the the spirits
3: world i was working as a food and beverage uh consultant and i started writing about uh first about food and and simple things like uh, Wine 101. So I was writing online for SlashFood.com, which at the time was considered the number one professional uh, food blog in the world. I've won that for many years. And I started getting into spirits because once you're a writer, you start getting samples in the mail and all of a sudden I'm tasting all these things and writing about them. And I just I found that the wines I really enjoyed. But spirits, there was so much going on on a different level. And then cocktails, the fine cocktails, the crafted cocktails were starting to become really big. And I started getting going to events and tasting cocktails and even submitted some recipes of my own to different people, uh, different companies. And they were like, hey, we tried this. This is really good. Can we put it on our website? Or would you like to be in our competition? Things like that. So it was kind of a snowball effect.
2: Yeah. Let's talk about... Um, the botanicals for these spirits. I mean, like like we said at the top of the show, you've got your sugar wash moonshine, you've got your aged peach brandy, which is extremely old school and really cool. We haven't had a real peach brandy on the market, and that's that's one of your motives for producing these mm-hmm. different spirits, is because obviously with the the culinary and cocktail renaissance coming back around uh there are a lot of you know when you read all these old cocktail books you see a lot of ingredients mm-hmm. in these recipes and specs that you're like what the hell is that we peach brandy like okay that sounds simple enough I could go like get Marie Brizard, you know like peach brandy but it's not a real peach brandy right it's a peach cordial liqueur yeah. as opposed to a brandy made from peaches yeah and it's usually like a liqueur mixed with a cheap brandy or something like that, yeah. you know, or neutral spirit. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So, and then also with the the colonial bitters, mm-hmm. we've got we've got some ground to cover with the the botanicals. I mean, like we know that you know, Fernet Branca controls seventy percent of the world's saffron market, mm-hmm. and Benedictine has the their their hand down on the uh the angelica seed. You know, mm-hmm. how did you come around to? I mean, another thing that you were telling me before the show is that you have 215
3: herbal tinctures. Right, my botanical library. Yeah. Um, Over the years, I've been laying my hands on... Every time I hear of a new botanical, um, I make a tincture out of it. Uh, Part of it goes back to I have a hobby of uh, foraging for uh, wild, edible, and medicinal plants. I've worked out in the wilderness for many years. And so I had tasted a lot of interesting herbs, botanicals, that the average person had and I wanted to put out bitters and for years I hemmed and hawed and said oh, okay this is gonna be a flash in the pan but now bitters in all their different variations are here to stay um and I, but I want to put out one that was really good so I have been collecting all these bitters making tinctures and tasting them and seeing what the flavor and aroma profiles are and I wanted to make this bitters just to see if I could And so about a year ago, I started researching, and I wanted to come up with bitters that we call them colonial bitters, our Dutch's colonial cocktail bitters. But they aren't made how bitters were back then to that taste profile. Instead, I I looked at the flavors and spices, aromas and perfumes of the 1700s, and some of the ingredients that were used then, like angelica seed, which isn't used as a spice anymore, uh, beef eater, gin, gin. Has angelica seed in it, the Benedictine liqueur, and between them, they probably take up you know the majority of the world market. Um, I didn't know that at the time. And I just liked the flavor of the angelica seed and saw that it was very popular back then. So I looked at other ingredients, ones that like the Native Americans had uh, introduced the colonists to. One of them is called spice bush, which is a wild bush. It's never really been grown commercially. I knew about it from the wilderness, how fantastic herb tea it made from the leaves and twigs and the berries, just the incredible, they called it American allspice back then. It's actually much more complex than allspice with a lot of black pepper and juniper notes as well as all these other spice flavors. And so I, I got together a list of about 20 different things that were popular in the flavor aromas back then and picked which ones I thought would play well off of each other and uh so having this huge library i was able to go through and say okay this works this doesn't put together a prototype and i was like something's missing here um, but there was a indian uh native american ingredient called kanak which uh, the word means mixture and they used kanak any time they were mixture uh, making a mixture for cooking spices medicinals or their um their uh smoking mixtures that they would use for their ceremonies they always used knick because so they felt it brought everything together and so for the heck of it i threw some knick in there and i was like wow this is working it was like the bitters for the bitters yep
2: <laughs> it was like the thing that brought everything together exactly cool so um let's let's jump into the uh the foraging thing for a second because mm-hmm. i think it, that's extremely fascinating i had the uh, the great opportunity to uh attend a seminar um, maybe like almost a year ago, I guess. It was, it was last, uh, last spring, early summer. And, uh, Nick Strangeway mm-hmm. yes, was Nick. talking about, uh, of course, you know, um, he was talking about foraging. He did a whole seminar on foraging mm-hmm. for different ingredients in Central Park. Okay. Yeah. And it, that was that at the uh, gin symposium? It was, it was right before that. Okay. Yeah. And, um, It was just fascinating because he he came back and he was talking about, like, growing your own ingredients, like, even in New York City, like, um, growing your own herbs and botanicals, Mm -hmm. you know, wherever you can. Basically, you know, on your fire escape or if if you're lucky enough to even have a fire escape in (laughs) New York City or on your windowsill. And uh, a lot of these ingredients were kind of, like, not necessarily, like, rare, they it was like lemon balm and hyssop and stuff like that, but it was really interesting to see a lot of these bartenders who were at the seminar come around and be like, "Oh oh shit man i i i could I can grow my own botanicals right, and right. mix them up together right. and obviously like anytime you're making like bitters or any kind of like tincture, there's a lot of trial and error, oh definitely, and I love that you have." Two hundred and fifteen different tinctures uh, at home, to where you can actually mix and match and really pinpoint uh, a flavor profile mm-hmm. for any of these. Yeah, like for me, it's like I'm like, oh, well, I make a Buddha's hand bitters. I'm going to throw mm-hmm. a small spice in there. I'm going to throw quassia bark because I like the the way it tastes. You know, but you actually have access to so many different uh, profiles that it must have been really. A, like a lot of fun
3: coming up with these these bitters, and then also these spirits. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I mean, I, it wasn't done all at once. It's been over a few years, so uh, otherwise, two hundred fifteen sounds overwhelming. Um, the peach brandy is the first product I want to make. I had been on different discussion boards, uh, Chanticleer Society, which and uh, um, some of the other cocktail boards, and I kept seeing again and again, peach brandy. Where's peach brandy? Where's real peach brandy? And I, at the time, was a partner in a winery up in Maine. We opened up a brewery that came on board to help open up the brewery. And we were going to have a small distillery. And I mentioned on discussion board, oh, does anyone have any information on this peach brandy, exactly how it was made? And it was a farmhouse product. and each farmhouse would make it themselves with whatever uh, leftover peaches they had and, you know, as a way of making money. So it, it, Peach brand was actually the number two spirit drunk in the 17 and 1800s in America. Um, you, you would just go to your local farmer who you liked his product and pick up a small barrel and it would be unaged at the beginning of the year. And by the time it was almost empty, it would be very aged. And uh, But... With prohibition, all of these farmhouse distilleries, because every town basically in America had a, a small distillery, and because uh, it was a value-added product for the farmers, a way to make extra cash. Sure. So um, the, the three generations basically lost the knowledge and taste about peach brandy. Lem Motlow, who was uh, Jack Daniel's nephew, who took over, loved peach and apple brandy and actually had a special still in the distillery where he made it for himself 1940 to 46 he put the apple and peach brandy back on the market it just didn't work and and that was basically the last time it was sold commercially um i'm a part of a, a member of the american distilling institute i help administer their online uh discussion forums for artisanal distillers and at conferences i mentioned to other distillers hey put out a peach brandy if you can and uh, two people did, very, very limited amounts, very expensive, uh, it's a very expensive product to make um, and really not available so I said, you know, okay I want to make this and finally, um, our the, the distillery up in Maine, we never got it opened I came back to New York and I started working on projects and uh, got a great business partner, uh, financial uh, person for this Dutch's Spirits that we're starting and I said, you know I want to make this product so basically I supplied the peach and he supplied the money for going into a winery and making it and we made this peach brandy which uh, I'm pleased with it's um, aged three to six months it was distilled out different ways I use different techniques So part of it is a blend of a peach eau de vie part of it is more pot distilled some of it was aged in charred barrels some of it in toasted barrels you know, some of it unaged, because uh, so, I wanted to bring in a broad spectrum of flavors. And you know, back in the uh, 17 and 1800s, um, you know, every single peach brandy was different because there's different stills and different ways they made it. And I wanted to get something that was just kind of uh, a blend of everything that could have possibly been back then. And this is the product that's just coming on the market right now. We have a few that came out uh, the past couple of months, and it's really cool. I mean, like but we were talking about before the show even it's
2: i mean i like i like the idea of blending them because of what you were saying about like having it in a barrel pulling from that first sip and then by the time it gets to the end of the barrel you've got a, a more aged product mm-hmm. but i like i like that it has like has a real like eau de v like it's got it's got just enough heat you know mm-hmm. to make it not so like
3: like what we're used to, which is a peach liqueur. Right. It's 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 a spirit. Yeah. It's a yeah. real spirit. I mean it's it's a brandy made from peaches. There's no added sugar, there's no colouring, it's just the flavor that came through. Part of the big flavor profile is because we used a mash or puree that's the whole peach, not a wine. So it went through the whole fermentation process and distillation process as thick as, you know, pudding. Um and that's you know, why the intensity of the flavor comes through so strong That and the, and the natural sugars that's transferred over. It's, it's delicious. It's You did a really good job on this one. Thanks. <laughs> um, we're going to take a
2: quick break. And when we come back, I'm sure we will continue to drink more peach brandy and sugar wash moonshine. We'll be right back with Jonathan Forrester.
1: Whole Foods Market creates win-win partnerships with our suppliers, and we love to tell their stories. New New Chocolates in Brooklyn offers delicious and classic combination truffles and caramels, sweet, salty, some even with beer. Using single-origin cocoa beans, production takes place right in their shop on Atlantic Avenue. Come have a taste in one of our six Manhattan locations.
2: And we are back.
1: Listening to the speakeasy. We've got Jonathan
2: Forrester in the studio. We got a little uh, sidetracked during the break because we were enjoying this amazing peach brandy so much. Um, Jonathan, tell us a little bit more about like the inspiration behind Duchess Spirits.
3: Okay, Duchess Spirits, uh, spelled D-U-T-C-H apostrophe S. Um, well, it's a up in Pine Plains, New York, near Rhinebeck, hour and a half north of the city. is a four hundred to five hundred acre farm. Um, farm, the original name Harvest Homestead Farm, uh, presently owned by the Adams family, and uh, not not to be confused with the show. Right, <laughs> um, direct descendant as far as I know from the president John Adams and oh. A- uh, Alex Adams um, in college met uh, Ariel Schlein he is the uh, president of Dutchess Spirits uh, and over the years they became good friends and they, it, Ariel was invited up to the farm and found that there were all these secret underground tunnels and bunkers and stuff and uh, Basically, it seems that the gangster Dutch Schultz financed an underground bootleg distillery on the property uh, back in 1930s. I did. I was approached uh, by them to come on board as consultant and distiller, and you know, for production, creating products, helping getting them onto market. Um, and I looked at the business plan and I said, "Okay, I got to go look at this place." And we went up to the farm, and it, it blew me away. Um, this was two years ago exactly. Two years ago, and. We pull up, and they move aside some uh, boards that are hiding up a small hole in a wall that's about, oh, three foot by three foot, and I stick my head in, and there's a four foot by four foot concrete tunnel that stretches out, and I see it makes a turn, and I don't know where it goes, and I crawl in and look with the flashlight, and there's over 600 feet of these concrete tunnels on the property. Wow. And huge underground bunkers. um, What were part of the sub-basement of a three-story barn, back during um, Prohibition. And uh, th- there was an ex-New York City police officer called Patrick Ryan, who no one knows exactly where he got his money, but because of the underground bunker nature of the thing, which uh, Dutch Schultz definitely that was one of his trademarks, was having escape tunnels and stuff. And the fact of verbal uh, you know, uh, stories told and research that was done later um, and newspaper articles, we're pretty sure Dutch Schultz. So It's probably also the original Dutch Langram. We're in Dutchess County, so that's how we came up with the name of Dutchess Spirits. Um, So uh, I did some research. I said, okay, I'm hearing stories about this, but I want to find out the reality. And I went online, and I went into archives, and I actually found several newspaper articles from 1932 um, saying, uh, uh, still seized in Pine Plains, Um, October 17th, 1932. On the third attempt at a raid by the feds, they finally found uh, the hidden distillery. I mean, twice everything was hidden so well that the feds didn't find anything. It's amazing. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And they knew there were eight people there on the property. And when they finally raided, two people who were laborers who didn't even speak English were captured. So we know the escape tunnels worked, that six of them got away. Um, Patrick Ryan, who's the farmer's in his name, never got held accountable for anything. You know, he was... A retired New York City cop, supposedly a fingerprint expert at the time, well, you know, how is a cop going to have enough money to buy a 500 acre farm? What was it twenty five thousand dollars worth of equipment? Yeah, that was somebody listed. was his palm. Yeah, I mean, it was in today's uh, scale, it would be over four hundred thousand dollars worth of equipment, and it was a huge distillery. Put it this way: two two thousand gallon stills were there. Now, that two thousand gallon still, we're looking at the distillery we're building now, and. If we are at peak production with two different permits, uh, making 70,000 proof gallons a year, um, our stills are one quarter the size. So they were producing um, somewhere around seven or eight hundred gallons a week of moonshine. Um, yeah they had when the feds uh, seized the place, uh, there was something like 13 or 15,000 gallons of moonshine in tanks. Like 10,000 pounds of sugar. I don't have the articles in front of me that list exact numbers or anything. Um, The farm had great history after that, too, uh, over the years. Um, uh, During uh, World War II, uh, a group of Germans who were worried about um, the possibility there might be internment camps for Germans, like what later happened on the west coast the Japanese, bought it as sort of a commune co-op thing and they built a, oh, 15 or 20 homes and they had a, there was a huge bunkhouse that, uh, with 10 bunk rooms in it and um, eventually passed on to other hands until it ended up in the Adams hands uh, back in 1960s.
2: And I I love stories like this because it was it was such a especially coming from you like talking to you earlier like you're kind of I I really wish we would have been recording the entire conversation before we even went on the air because you're kind of a crazy dude (laughs) you've kind of done all this wild shit and and, uh, especially for you to be working with this distillery those stories to me are some of the most fascinating actually they're really the reason one of the main reasons why I started getting into this whole uh this whole world of spirits and, and cocktails and it was it's mainly like this this very rich history and to have uh you know New York City cop with his name on on a property in a distillery mm-hmm. and uh eh, I mean like these are great stories yeah these are really yeah. great stories and it just adds more more life or more, more richness to the, the history of these things and uh, I mean shit man like I I constantly think about it, like especially like with uh, I, I'm not a big fan of NASCAR I'm actually mm-hmm. not but that's like where like moonshining right, right NASCAR came out of moonshine yeah exactly the bootleggers just running rum running and mm-hmm. basically like especially like what, what you have here the next thing we're going to taste on the show here is the uh,
3: the sugar wash moonshine
2: which is essentially kind of it's kind of a rum in yeah, a way it's, like a it's kind of like
3: a white rum cachaça sugar eau de v yeah which is really cool and uh and you said you use turbinado and demerara <laughs> Yep, yep, sugar, sugar in the raw, turbinado uh, sugar. Okay, the reason I m- made this, we we wanted to ha- just have a novelty thing that might only be sold out of the distillery, and we were playing around with it. And I looked at the newspaper articles from 1932, and it described everything that was found there, and there was no trace of grain mentioned. And back during prohibition, even to present day, mid-Atlantic and New England um, moonshine production came from more of a rum background. Rum is anything made from cane, sugar cane, um, and uh, you know it listed you know how many thousands of pounds of sugar there were, and you know there was a case of toasted oak chips, so they may have been a part of it, trying to age it. But mostly, the product had to be a sugar wash moonshine, which means it, it, it's 100% sugar and water and yeast fermented into basically a, a white rum-style wash and then distilled. Well, you can make a very fine product like that, but I decided instead of white sugar to go with something that had a lot more flavor to it. so that A the, bit more body richness. Exactly, so the turbinado sugar. And then I used a, um, a Caribbean rum yeast. I wanted to bring flavor in. But we also wanted it to be a white spirit and light in uh in flavor and approachable so we took it all the way up to a neutral spirit and then brought it down and people see sugar wash moonshine and this funky cool uh moonshine style bottle that it's in and they're scared like oh this is gonna be harsh and rich but i don't know why don't you describe really pleasant it's really pleasant
2: and would you say that something like this is uh Kind of more along the lines of like the traditional, like something you might find back in the back in the mid eighteen hundreds, uh, even like going further back, like Triangle Trade days. I mean, like
3: no, I would say this was a product that pretty much started in Prohibition because before that, it was really a rum. They were using uh, molasses, molasses and water.
2: Oh yeah, sure.
3: So uh, I would say that historically, this probably started. Right at the beginning of Prohibition, as the cheapest way you can make a decent quality spirits, and you know most people think of moonshine as this harsh, horrible stuff. But these guys were out to make money. You don't get repeat customers by making lousy stuff.
2: Yeah, I mean, like that—that's that, true. That is very true. But also, it's Prohibition. People yeah. are trying to get their hands on whatever they could. That's you know? true too. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, like this—this this one actually, to me, has more of a—I mean. I, and In no way I'm, I'm trying to like criticize this at all, because like, I really like this product. Um, but to me, it's like definitely a more refined version. And we were talking about mm-hmm. uh, what we were talking about before the show. You were saying that a lot of times uh, during Prohibition, people were... Or even going back to the 1700s and the 1800s, a lot of these products that were being distilled were... You were saying that they were actually... If, pretty high quality mm-hmm. rather than what a lot of people have there you're saying there's a common misconception with that um, especially during prohibition too mm-hmm. because we all think about like uh the fact that a lot of the cocktails especially even like with the, the progression of the old-fashioned cocktail mm-hmm. uh muddling fruit in rather than like a, a like a. what it's actually called a whiskey cocktail, rolling right. fruit in and it's you know some seltzer and everything to mask the bad flavors of the cheap whiskey. But
3: what you were saying before is that
2: there was actually some really high quality products coming out.
3: Sure, I mean if you're a farmer and you are making a value added good by taking peaches that are so ripe that they're going to rot if you don't do something good with them and turning it into brandy, you have the same people coming back year after year to buy your product if it's a good product. Um, so sure, I'm positive there's a lot of rock gut, cheaply made stuff out there. But hey, George Washington was a distiller. You know, he yeah. was, and, and he made peach brandy and he made you know whiskey. Um, as a matter of fact, that the, the um, Mount Vernon Distillery, where they're recreating George Washington's distillery, the first product out was uh, whiskey. But their second one uh, a year ago, they put peach brandy into barrels. Um, you know, if the president is making a lousy product uh it, you know I, I, that would surprise me yeah well he's our leader
2: <laughs> i just put some of the uh, the dutch's colonial bitters into the uh, the sugar wash moonshine and i gotta say it's a really nice room temperature old-fashioned as it turns <laughs> out <laughs> and jack's gonna have one after the show <laughs> um so tell us a little bit about the uh the, the dutch's
3: colonial bitters Oh, I covered a lot of that before when I spoke about, uh, you know, the, how I came about with it and everything. But um, but, but as, as far as, like, where we're able to find these products. Ah, okay, yes. Uh, right now, um, we're basically in New York, New Jersey, with Gotham Artisanal, who handles a lot of very fine. They uh, do, like, sodas. They do yeah. some syrups.
2: And they're handling the employees-only stuff, like you were talking exactly. about in the show. Yeah, um,
3: some of the, uh, the other... And then um, online, uh, cocktailkingdom.com. Mm-hmm. Um, yep, just dropped off 10 cases there earlier today of the bitters. Uh, they are fantastic at uh, any type of the uh, cocktail-associated products, uh, whether it's bitters or fantastic barware, Japanese and German, high quality. I love it. I, yeah. I go there when I'm feeling down. Yeah. I go buy some gold bar tools. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yep, Greg Bohm. I mean, he he started out as a book publisher and uh, children's books, children's books, yeah. and then, but he was a cocktail enthusiast and collected antique books, and he did reproductions exactly to the binding and color and type, face of these antique books. Yeah, and then branched out into the barware. So online, cocktailkingdom.com, and
2: uh, yeah, see, <laughs> I see you I have one in, you, in my bag there. right now. Yeah, yeah. the uh, Robert Vermeer book. Um. So, right now, it's basically uh, being
3: distributed. Just, I mean, obviously, you've only been doing this for a couple weeks now? Yeah, the bidders have been out. We released them at Tales of the Cocktail officially uh, last July. Um, You know, we didn't do any advertising or anything on it. You know, a small company just started. I mean, we're micro artisanal. Yes, down the road, we'll be much larger, but right now, we're still in construction of our facilities up on the farm and uh, won't be finished until later this year. Um, But,. uh, Got some really good press in the holidays. SeriousEats.com uh, said best bitters 2011. Food and Wine Magazine, which, you know, they're the top. Um, uh, Jim Meehan of PDT, which is uh, was voted one of the top co- cocktail bars in the world, and he was voted one of the best bartenders in the world a year or two ago, uh, happens to be uh, one of the editors, and he picked it, uh, the, the Duchess Clone of Cocktail Bitters, as one of his five favorite gifts. So we got a lot of really good press that just came about and, you know, Gary Regan, top cocktail writer and expert all of a sudden on Facebook goes, um... He, know, he stopped off his beard yeah, and they put <laughs> it on top of his head. Right. <laughs> he he, uh, he said, I stopped using Angostura bitters and Dutchess Colonial Cocktail Bitters is all I use. And for him to say that on Facebook, you know, it's uh, I don't know how many thousands of friends he has um, did wonders for the sales and people... Uh, we we get cocktail recipes now every now and then mailed to us you know said oh this is in this bar here and this bar there and uh a friend of mine who's a uh, brand ambassador took bottles to India and Asia and all that so now nice. every now and then we get a photo on a bar We're sitting with a bunch of other bitters in some way off places you know dutch's bitters hanging out with their bitter friends awesome i, I well i'll have to uh, submit some of my recipes to you <laughs> oh definitely
2: <laughs> um i can't tell you how much i've enjoyed having you in the studio today um and also i can't really tell you how much i've enjoyed you bringing a bunch of these spirits by sure Um, glad to jonathan forrester you have to come back sure thing you have to be a regular guest on this show in fact you should have your own show because (laughs) we didn't touch enough ground (laughs) with, with this show today but uh, I really appreciate you coming by and
3: bringing these lovely spirits. What's the website? It's com. That's uh, www.dutchspirits.com. Excellent. Look for Jonathan Forrester around.
2: He's one of the most interesting people you'll ever get a chance to talk to. I'm Dave Mabolti. We'll see you next week. Cheers. Take it easy, folks.
1: Man, he's high. I said that cat is high. Yes, he's high. Man, he's higher than a guy.